Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Knocker Edelstein is a corporate lawyer turned entrepreneur and investor. She's experienced every stage of the startup life cycle, from inception and launch to funding and exit. She co-founded on-demand home service startup Urban U, which scaled rapidly Australia-wide to secure leadership of one of the largest technology-disrupted markets, which she and her co-founder then consolidated the industry with three big M&As and then successfully exited via a trade sale. Now an early-stage investor, Noga is a venture partner at Black Nova VC, an entrepreneur in residence at Tractor Ventures, and her insights into the startup journey and ability to work hands-on with early-stage founders has seen her mentor hundreds of startups at Australia's leading accelerators, including Startmate and Founders Institute. She's served on the board of SB Australia, which supports women-led businesses and boasts the very impressive track record of 85% of alum going on to raise capital. Before founding Urban U, Nogger worked at top-tier Sydney law firms and in London and was general counsel at Yahoo 7 during its reign as an internet pioneer. She has board experience across a diverse range of corporate, startup and not-for-profit organisations. Nogger is a sought-after MC and keynote speaker, which may just be the result of her teenage experience as a professional actor. Nogger, it's fantastic to get you online. I've been wanting to meet you for ages. So thank you so much for finding the time. Oh, thank you, Catherine. Likewise. So you've got such a rich history in all sort of parts of the startup ecosystem. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of across the arc, you know, how that started and how much of that was deliberate and how much of that was by chance? Well, my background actually is as a corporate lawyer. So I started my career working in legal firms, but became very interested in technology and went to Yahoo as the general counsel there back when, you know, Yahoo was the queen of the internet. And we were doing such exciting things. We had the very first online communities. We had the very first online radio streaming. We had the very first online dating, like And we were just making it up as we went. It was so exciting. And it was a very entrepreneurial environment. And a lot of my alum, I guess you would say, left to start businesses. And, you know, it just gave me the confidence to believe it was something that I could do too. And, you know, even though I was the lawyer there, I ended up running BD for the search marketing team just because there was a gap and someone asked and I went, yeah, I'll do that. Why why not? (laughs) that's one of the most interesting transitions of all actually because I think lawyers often get stuck in that 
trap of expertise like I know how to do this everyone thinks I know how to do this and I can only be a lawyer how did you break out of that was it just the environment or was that something particular to you because lots of lawyers you know find themselves after 50 years of practice wishing they might have done something else for a bit the reason I went from being at a law firm to going in-house was I kept getting frustrated at being at the tail end of a deal. And so all of this excitement would happen where they would put these deals together and then all we would do is type them up, really, like just write them. And that was frustrating to me. And then I think that interest in the commercial side kept growing. And so, I, you know, I had the opportunity at Yahoo to be really involved in lots of really exciting M&A deals that we were doing. We acquired Spreets when I was there and and I just kept moving more towards that commercial side. And in fact, in the last year that I was at Yahoo, I ended up moving into a commercial role where I was the head of content and rights management. So I think it's a mindset. And actually, I do recall on my very first day, the head of the search marketing team took me to lunch with the team and he was like, oh, here's our new lawyer. (laughs) And I was like, well, I don't want to just be the person who writes the contracts. I want to help you do the deals. And he was like, I didn't realise that was such a shift in mindset for them, but he was really excited about that. He said, we've never had a lawyer to think that way. So I think it's a, a different mindset and definitely starting that commercial journey early, I think is important before you get trapped in (laughs) the black letter law. But in my last year at Yahoo, I became really interested in kind of this idea of outsourcing household chores because I had had my first child and was chronically overstretched and trying to outsource stuff around the house. And I connected with a colleague of mine there, Elkie Keeley, going through a similar situation and we're like, there has to be a better way to do this. It was 2013, so Uber had just launched and everything was moving on demand. Airtasker was launching around the same time. I think it was just this real, actually it was a US version of it anyway, but there was this real movement to outsourcing chores and at the same time pressing a button on your phone and getting anything instantly delivered. But that hadn't come to the service economy yet. And so we loved this idea of on-demand home services. Elkie and I left Yahoo, packed it all in and... uh, yeah, gave it a crack with our first startup. And in terms of the challenge of being a mother and leaving the security of a regular pay packet, how did you feel about that? Talking to lots of founders, sometimes you've never worked as hard for no financial return for such a long period of time. And when you've got a young family to support, it's a really difficult, not only sort of financial challenge, but also mental challenge. How did you navigate that? That's interesting how you frame it as a financial and a mental challenge because, yeah, it's both of those things. So we didn't get paid for two years at all. And the first paycheck we took home, I was talking about this to someone the other day, actually. It was the best paycheck I ever got, but it was the equivalent of what I earned as a first-year lawyer 15 years prior, but it was the best money I'd ever earned. So I think financially we were both in a position where we had partners who had well-paid jobs and secure jobs so the financial part for us wasn't as much of a stretch and it's an awkward thing to say because actually sometimes it can be easier for women if they've you know their husband's earning good money then they can do it and that that actually always like it's a weird position to be in but and that can be harder for men in that way right I think as long as one partner has a financial security you can take a period of time without earning money 
But for both of us, the mental challenge was much harder. And that idea that we weren't generating value within the family, but also we were still expected to take on the full-time carer responsibilities because we weren't earning money. So that was really hard. So having to pay for nannies so we could be at work when, you know, we weren't generating anything, you know, mentally, that was a really hard thing to do. And we were building a business about like having cleaners in your house and gardeners and outsourcing these things. And we were still doing all of that. We had cleaners and yet we weren't earning money. So yeah, getting your head around it is is hard. And what was the capital raising process like in 2013? Man, it was so hard. I, to this day, like I have traumatic scars from the fundraise process, but I learned so much from it. So back in 2013, I don't even think we left to build a startup. You know, I'm using inverted commas here. We were just, we wanted to build a business. We would certainly have never called ourselves entrepreneurs. Like I think those terms have become far more commonplace in the last, let's say, three, four years maybe. So we started to build this business and actually we did that without thinking about raising money and it wasn't until we entered our first pitch competition and we only did that not for the purposes of raising money but just because we thought we're going to have to start telling people about this business, we should get out there and practice And so we went, the first comp we went to was run by an organisation called Women as Entrepreneurs. And that felt like a safer place because it was only women, wouldn't be as judged maybe. Went, won the pitch comp. And actually, as it turned out on the panel were people like Phil Morley and Melissa Widner and Katie Mile, who were very influential in the startup community at that time. And, you know, said to us, you really need to think about raising some money. This is a marketplace. It's going to be really hard to scale. There's going to be lots of competitors soon. And that got our thoughts, you know, the ball rolling. And we started to think about needing to raise money. The seed round was really hard to raise that seed round. But we were fortunate to secure an angel investment of half a million dollars as our first seed round from a single investor, actually. But we had realised that there was something wrong with the, not something wrong, we just didn't know how to pitch the business to investors. It was different to get up and tell people what we did. We were confident doing that, but getting them to give us money was something that we <laughs> we would get partway through the process and then we would lose them. We didn't know what we were doing wrong. So in 2017, when we were doing our Series A, we actually were accepted into the SBE tech program. And that was really the transformation for us in terms of pitching the business because we had this real, like I I call it an aha moment, where I realised that this was a home service business and we were going in front of these investors who were largely men, you know, middle-aged white men, telling them how hard it was to get your house cleaned. (laughs) And they would just... Oh, I don't know how my wife finds a cleanup. Never even thought about it. And their faces would just go blank and they didn't connect to the problem. And what we weren't telling them, this was the realisation, was how this was going to make the money, right? Because that's what investors want to hear. They're giving you an investment so that they can make money. And so we learned through that process with SBE that we needed to be pitching through numbers, telling them our metrics. And as soon as we started saying, 
You know, this is a $13 billion opportunity in outsourcing household chores. We're growing double digits month on month. We have like a 2% churn rate. We, you know, all of those things, all of a sudden it made sense to them. And we came out of SBE and secured our Series A in like two weeks, which was amazing. So, Wow. And so the business was growing organically, but then also you were doing some sort of acquisitions and roll-ups. Was your transactional legal background instrumental in in knowing that that might be a strategy to help you grow? A hundred percent. You know, we looked internationally at how these types of businesses were growing and, you know, we had seen what the cost was to acquire users one by one. And that is really the challenge of a marketplace is finding viable channels to grow and it was really expensive to acquire one by one but if you could acquire a whole lot of users in one go it was obviously much more cost effective and so we did that through distribution but we also saw that for example the largest company in the US when they wanted to go into the east coast instead of just moving into the east coast they bought the largest existing player in the east coast And so we thought, okay, firstly, that's a great strategy for growth, but also that's probably what's going to ultimately happen in Australia is there's going to be consolidation here and perhaps one of the international players will come and instead of just entering the market, they'll want to buy the biggest international player. So we decided to position ourselves as that for both growth, but also as a potential exit opportunity. And that's exactly how it played out. And I think in terms of my legal background, what I knew was how to get those deals done. And it's interesting because I still see it today. People are really nervous about talking with their competitors. They're like, I'm not going to go and speak to this person. They have the exact same business as me. Why would I speak to them? But that's exactly why you should because that whole keep your friends close and your enemies closer, you want to be collegiate with people in your industry so that when opportunities arise, you're the first person that they think of. And that is exactly how it played out. A company called Home Hello had decided they were exiting the market. They approached us. I think we're the only people they approached. We did a really great deal with them to acquire all of their business. And then we, you know, Elkie's background was PR and she did an amazing job of getting the story out that we were now the largest player. We had acquired all of their business in Melbourne. That's how we entered Melbourne. And because of all of that press, we then were approached for an exit ourselves. So it really played out as we hoped it would. And how was that process of yourself thinking about being acquired? Was it a sort of an emotional decision or did it seem right from the moment it was floated? No, it was definitely an emotional decision. You know, your startup is like your baby. And so letting go of that was really hard and you poured your blood, sweat and tears into it. And I do tell people now, when you're building a startup, you need to understand that if you're going to take external investment, most likely there's going to need to be an exit at some point because that's how they're going to realise value. So you really need to be clear from the outset what your goals are when you go in. And if it's a business that you want to hold on to and be the CEO of forever, like you need to be really careful about taking external investment. Having said that, that's not why we exited. We were doing a raise and we had the, we, you know, it was difficult to do that next round. There was a quite a competitive market. We were concerned about our ability to keep raising beyond this kind of round that we were doing as that market consolidated further. 
it was a hard slog, I have to be honest. Like it had been, you know, our kids were getting to the age where we knew if we did this for another five years, we'd miss all of their high school years. Like it was a good opportunity. We kind of did the numbers at the end of the day and said, like, if we keep diluting and taking more money, this is how the size of what the business needs to get to for us to have an equivalent exit in five, 10 years. So you know, for all of those reasons, we decided it was the right thing for us. You know, I have pangs of regret, definitely. It was a great outcome, but like I miss it. And, you know, watching someone else grow your business is a really hard thing to do. It's like watching someone else raise your child. But we had to, you know, come to think of it as like, we'd sent them off to university. They were going off on their own now. And <laughs> and so how was that transition? Because My guess is that when you and Elke were working in the business, it was all consuming. And then presumably once someone else owns it and they're, you know, taking your baby to university and that's not your job anymore, how did you find that sort of change of pace from being 100% devoted to something that was all consuming to, you know, opportunities that are available but maybe not one central thing? Yeah, that's such a good question. It was It's actually really hard for founders when they leave their business to figure out what comes next. And both of us went through that. We had been corporate people. So, I, you know, I'd been a lawyer. She'd been in, in marketing and communications. We then had this business. And then what do you do next with your life? Like, what is that next phase? And many go on and build other businesses. I went down many rabbit holes and really sort of looked back at what I'd enjoyed over the period of time and I'd really loved my time. So I joined the board of SBE after I had done the program. So I'd been on the board for several years and I loved supporting other founders. Like I really just enjoyed that process of helping them grow, getting to apply what I had learned myself through my own business and through all of the other entrepreneurs I'd worked with and supporting them. And so I kind of just dug into that for a while. I joined Startmate as a mentor And one of the things I realized was I kept seeing so many great businesses. I wanted to maybe start investing in them myself, but I felt like that I didn't really know how to do that. I felt like I had this knowledge gap about how to be an investor, which is, I think, quite a female thing, right? Like we feel like we need to know every little detail before (laughs) we feel confident. Yeah. And have the certificate that says you qualify. Like I think, (laughs) especially someone who comes from a, you know, a legal background, that sort of feeling of oh I don't know am I allowed I don't I don't know if I've got the pass that says it's okay you have it exactly right because what I did was the UNSW did its first AGSM course (laughs) and actually I saw so on Twitter Phil Morley posted a thing saying I have two free tickets to give away to the UNSW angel course you know let me know if you want it and I was like yes that is what I want and I got the free ticket and my big question was Like I'd been a lawyer, as you say, I knew how to do the deal and I'd been a founder. I knew how to raise money from an investor, but I felt like there was this knowledge gap about how to financially assess a company. And so I went there, kept waiting for this magic spreadsheet of like, this is the formula, you know, you put in revenue here and you, (laughs) and there was no magic spreadsheet. And that was actually my big realization. And I knew Theoretically, it's art, not science. And I knew all of those things, but I realized that most investors are also just kind of figuring it out. Like, I don't know, like, (laughs) especially early stage. And so it gave me the confidence 
to think that I could do it. But also what I learned, actually, one of the things that I took out of that was at the beginning, you should do invest with other people who have done it before and lean on their expertise. And so I joined the Eleanor Ventures Syndicate, which is now Flying Fox with Kylie Fraser and Rachel Newman and did a, you know my first batch of investing with them. And that was fantastic because although I was seeing deals, I didn't have to be going out there and scouting necessarily. I wasn't putting the deal memos together, but I could get access to their deal memos so I could see what they were looking at, how they were assessing it, what the interest was. And that worked really well for me. So that's really how I got started with investing. And, and one of the reasons I've been keen to meet you is because I was also part of that first working theory angels in between. And I suppose, you know, what I really like is the humility with which you approach that, you know, because I think it could be easy to just sort of say, I've done this before, I know everything, and make the sort of rookie mistake of writing really big checks into the first couple of deals you see that look really attractive. And what's great investing with people like Rachel and Kylie is that you can write much smaller checks into a lot more deals as you build your confidence. Yes. And I think that is something that needs to be talked about more because there's this expectation when you have this label as being an angel investor um, that you're going to be writing really big checks. So it goes in two ways. It's interesting because when I was a founder and, you know, we would meet angels and then they would talk about only writing a $25,000 check, like our hearts would sink. We're like, oh God, we're going to have, how many of these are we going to have to get together to make our round? But now in reverse, I think, especially for women, that fear of the unknown really stops them from writing those checks. But I mean, I'm writing largely like $5,000 checks, like $10,000 checks. They're small entry points and then you get to follow those companies and see which ones you want to continue with and it's actually you know I think syndicates is a really great way to get started and especially for women without having to put out a lot of money worry about losing it but also just not really know what you're doing it's it's not intimidating yep and how important do you think it is um for there to be more women investors so you know there's this dearth of capital that finds its way into the hands of women founders. How much of the problem do you think is that there's just not that many women who either have the capacity or desire to to either as angel investors or, you know, professional venture capital investors are actually funding businesses? I think it's a big piece of the puzzle. Um, having more women make investment decisions is really key to getting more women funded. There's a few reasons for that. The most obvious being, as I described earlier, when you're pitching a business idea that men don't understand. And as an investor, I get it. Like one of the important things to me is that I understand the problem that this founder is trying to solve. So having more women making those decisions means there's a bigger audience for people who understand that problem. But also, you know, women pitch in different ways. They're not as confident always. And being able to see underneath that is also really important. The networks, right? So the classic thing of men go to school, they go to university, they go into the workforce with other men who go on to become investors. And so when they are founders and they want to raise money, they've got this pool of people to already tap you know, women don't have that as much because there's less women 
deploying capital, they have to go out and actively build those networks from scratch. So there's lots of reasons why I think that is really important. It's interesting because you said that you had that aha moment when you did the SBE course and obviously it's, you know, a pretty good proof point if you, you know, raise your Series A round so quickly after you've graduated from the course, but presumably that access to the alumni network is really valuable too. How has that network worked for you and how can we as a community do more to support women with networks? Yeah, the networks are important in a few ways. So the cohort of women I went through, we're still super close. So Christy Chong and Sylvia Pfeiffer and a whole lot of women who went on to, you know, build amazing businesses. But we actually all had a table together at the 10-year impact event recently and all of us came, you know, everyone who'd done that course in 2017. It's that feeling of people who know what you've been through. We were there at the beginning when we all were brought to tears when we first pitched and (laughs) saw the trials and the tribulations but understood it. I think that's a big thing with founders and actually a big reason why I wanted a co-founder was that your normal friends, you know, people who don't live in the startup world don't understand at all what you do. They don't get it. They don't get the intensity of it. They just feel like it's another job and it's not that. And so having someone else around you who gets what you're going through and thinks about it 24-7 like you do is, I think, really important. So that's part of it, having those people that go through and you can talk to and share those experiences. But then also the network for investment and for partnerships. And there's a lot of networks in Australia focused on doing that for women now, which is really great. Obviously, Heads Over Heels has been around for a long time, Scale, SBE, there's lots of organisations now popping up. But one thing I'm seeing investors do better as well now is try and support their companies with networks as well. So like Attractor, that's like a core part of what we do for our founders. And I think that was really missing early on. I certainly recall asking our investors to try and connect me with a, a mentor, for example, because this was the first time I had done this and they just kind of went, we didn't have a mentor for you like you go find your own mentor right whereas now like the investors have teams of EIRs and venture partners who are there just to do that and they realize that they're tied to the success of the business right so we should be supporting the founders with everything to help them achieve it because we share in that that success. You mentioned Tractor Ventures there. We've had Matt Allen on the podcast previously, but it'd be great if you can talk a bit about, you know, what Tractor's all about and why you're attracted to being involved. And even in this, you know, sort of relatively short period of time since we talked to Matt maybe 18 months ago, feels like there's been an enormous sort of growth of what Tractor's doing in that time. Yes. So I joined Tractor about a year ago, but interestingly, I actually invested before that. So I was an investor in their first equity round. And the reason I invested was firstly, I think there's that trust. And I was like, I trust you, Matt. Like, (laughs) this sounds like a great idea. I will follow you. But also I loved the idea of non-dilutive finance. It's something that didn't exist when we were building our business. And, you know, I talked to you about our exit decision. You know, part of it was the dilution that we had experienced. And maybe we would have had a different decision process had we still held on to more equity. 
And can you just explain non-dilutive financing and the way that Tractor approaches it? Yes. So Tractor is revenue-based financing. We essentially provide debt or loans to startups in a similar way to a bank, but startups can never get loans from a bank, right? Because there's no security, but Tractor doesn't require security. So we have actually built some proprietary technology, which allows us to assess the financial viability of lending to a particular startup. And the way you pay it back, it's called revenue-based financing. So you pay it back as a percentage of your revenue each month. So we share that risk with you. If you earn a bit more revenue one month, you pay a little bit more of the loan down. If you don't have as good a month, you're not locked into a set amount. There's lots of mechanics around it, but it goes up or down depending on how the business grows. But it's interesting because when Tractor first started, we had a lot of bootstrapped founders come in building really sustainable businesses and just wanted to unlock some capital for growth. And that was where I think the term Tractor came from, Tractor's not rockets. But what we've seen over time, and it, you know, it may be a function of the more difficult fundraising environment that we're in now as well, with more pressure on valuations. But what we're seeing more now is founders wanting to delay selling equity in their business until they have reached a inflection point or the next milestone where they'll be able to raise at a higher valuation. Or maybe they just want to do both at the same time so they don't have to sell down as much equity. So maybe they'll take some debt and some equity. And so what we do is we can also offer them entry into our what we call our fast track. It's essentially an advisory. I'm avoiding using the word program because it's not a program. It's a really bespoke service where we just surround them by the experts and the people that are tailored to what they need to grow the business. So my role at Tractor, I started as entrepreneur in residence. I now lead that advisory and fast track team. So we do a lot of mentoring one-to-one, but we'll surround them with, firstly, Tractor has like 90 shareholders who are all incredible exited founders themselves. And so they're all aligned to help support our founders. So we can get them on the phone with any of those people, whether it's for capital raising or support or whatever it might be. We're also very connected ourselves. So, you know, I think that network effect can really have a huge impact on the ability for these companies to grow. So it's both of those things. It's coming in, it's growing without having to sell as much equity and then having that support around you to really accelerate. And so that to me was just a no-brainer. When I heard Matt pitch all of that, I was like, I am just... So in for that because I wish it was something that was around when I was growing my business. Our mission at Tractor is to unlock possibilities for founders. We don't have a fixed way of doing things. Like we're there for the founder to help unlock what it is that they want to do. And if they want to not grow a rocket, grow a sustainable business, that's awesome too. We're absolutely there for that. And just on that fast track that you're leading, is that sort of a consulting user pays model or, or does that is it included in the, the revenue-based finding? How, how does that work? So not all companies that take debt will be a good match for Fast Track. So what we, we bring them in and then we kind of work together for a bit. If it is something that they're interested in, so perhaps they want us to support them in raising some equity capital, Fast track is based on warrants, essentially. So we'll negotiate up to 2% that we will acquire in the company when they have a liquidity event at some point in the future. It's 
really interesting how Matt and April Allen have just been able to innovate the, the sort of sector itself. I think what was the original approach of let's just do everything that they do in Silicon Valley and bring it here. It feels like there's a real creativity there. But there also seems to be a real focus on diversity. So there's a really strong presence of sort of gender diversity in the team at Tractor. Is that conscious or has it happened organically? I think it's a bit of both. There's definitely a focus on diversity. And as you say, our leadership, there's Matt and April and also Jodie Imam is a co-founder and now co-CEO and she led SBE team. We have myself, we have Olivia Doherty, who was also, you know, running community in SBE. So we have a lot of people there who are really focused on diversity. But Matt himself is too. And so it's both. His leadership is very focused on just bringing in the right people, but also with that lens of doing the right thing, making sure there is that diverse perspective. So, you know, I I do believe it's both. So looking at your career, it's really easy to to, to say, oh, Nogga is just one of those people that everything goes smoothly for. And (laughs) even though it was painful raising capital, she's been able to, you know, be successful at everything. Are you able to shatter that myth and sort of share a story or two about things that haven't gone the way you wanted and, and what you've learned from it? Yeah, I mean, I I love that you say that. Thank you. But of course, that's not the case at all. Resilience is a really important quality as a founder. When I was in high school, I actually did professional acting. <laughs> so that was what, what I thought I was going to do with my life. I thought I was going to be an actor. And I was in a bunch of movies and TV shows and all of this stuff. And I think that experience of going to auditions and getting knocked back was really tough but helped to build that thick skin that has gone on to be really important as I've gone on and had those tough capital raising discussions and so on. So when I went to uni, I actually took a year off from my law degree to just try and be an actor, like just do that. And I went to that year, I went to so many auditions and it just didn't happen for me. Like it just wasn't working. I wasn't getting the parts, those parts that I was getting, I was being like, I don't want to move to another city, I've got a boyfriend, whatever. It just wasn't happening. And that was really tough because I think like my whole life I thought that's where I was going, even though my parents had still made me go to university and I'd done a law degree. So, yeah, I think that ability to just reframe and I guess you would even say pivot early on has been something that I've kind of kept with me and so when things don't go well I've never really been one to get particularly stressed about it I'm quite outcome focused and just kind of knuckle down and figure out what to do next. You also seem like someone who's always learning you know there's lots of learning but also sharing your learnings with others. Are there particular things books podcasts things that you would recommend to other people that you've learned a lot from? I do listen to a lot of podcasts. So that constant learning is important. So actually, it's funny because when I was between, I'd sort of left Yahoo, we were trying to build this urban new business, but knew nothing about building a business. Every day I used to go for a walk at Bono Beach and I was listening to Seth Godin's startup school. And that is really where I learned the fundamentals of starting a business. I knew nothing about it and I found it so motivating. And he, essentially it was him running the first Y Combinator startup school and he taped it all 
and then he just played each session on this this podcast. It's probably a little outdated now, but for me, for people starting out, like those are the fundamentals. I, I just love Seth Godin. Masters of Scale, I got very into when I was deep in building mode. So once we were kind of well into Urban New, Masters of Scale was my go-to. And I still do sometimes listen to it. I find those earlier episodes with Airbnb and Uber and stuff really instructive. And now, like when I'm trying to kind of learn more about investing, I love the 20 Minute VC, Harry Stebbings is one of my go-tos. And I do listen to just a lot of podcasts with founder stories, Scale and Innovation Bay. The Innovation Bay one's helpful for just kind of staying up to date with what's going on in the ecosystem. And Ian's got a great accent. Oh, and I love Ian. Yeah, he's easy to listen to. And books, I think the hard thing about hard things is something you have to read if you're building a startup. At Tractor, we love sending our founders a book called Play Bigger when when they start up we send them a welcome pack with some merch I'm sure everybody has seen tractor merch everywhere we do a good job of that but play bigger which is really an int- a great book about category creation and I think it's a great way of thinking about how to cut through with your business like what is different about the, what you're doing that's going to create a category and actually build a lasting brand any tips for getting it all done productivity fitting it all in I sigh because probably a year ago I was really struggling because I bought a director at SBE, Tractor Ventures. I'm also a venture partner at Black Nova. And then I'm also trying to do my own angel investing. And I have so four or five inboxes and a million Slack channels and I was just drowning. And so I signed up to do the Puddle Pod with Michael Batko, who runs Startmate. And that was really great. It was funny because when I signed up, I was like, oh, is this going to be all like really, it was a bit embarrassing, is this going to be really junior people? Like, am I going to look really stupid that I don't know how to manage my life? But it was great to see the variety of people that do that, people from all sectors and all different positions in the ecosystem. And I learned a lot of tips there. So blocking time in my calendar is helped me a lot. I use a system called Shift software, which brings all of my inboxes together and that's just transformed the way I manage my day because I used to just be flicking tabs between gmails all the time and then one thing I do which I really recommend is I turn off all slack notifications on my phone I do not have slack notifications on my phone because I figure if I'm not at my desk then do I really need to know about it I'll, I'll deal with it when I'm at my desk or if I want to check my slack I can actively go in and do that on my phone But what I found was I'd be out walking my dog and I'd get slacks and I'd go in and look at them and I wouldn't be able to deal with them. And then they'd just get lost and I'd be forgetting to do stuff and I was just losing track of everything. So I highly recommend turning off slack notifications. Oh, that's such such good advice because it's also when you can't do anything about it, it just makes you feel anxious. That's right. And it wrecks whatever you're doing in the moment. So um, that's such good advice. Two last questions. What advice would you give an entrepreneur who's seeking funding? So we do a lot of this at Tractor. We really help people put together a capital strategy, capital raising strategy. There's a few kind of practical things and then a few, I suppose, psychological things, I would say. From a practical perspective, it's really important to run a process. So a big mistake we made early on, you know, and I think one of the reasons we found our seed round so hard was we would have a conversation with one or two investors, go well down that path, 
they would peter off. Then we'd have to start all over again with new investors. We didn't run a proper process. It was hugely distracting. We didn't build any FOMO or momentum between investors. You know, it's trite to say, we hear it a lot, but it's really true. Investors, they take signals from other investors. So if everyone wants to pile in, like that's a great signal. So definitely run it as a process. I think as well, you need to plan early. So we talked about networks, right? And so raising capital is a relationship-driven thing. So it's very unlikely that you're going to raise capital from a cold introduction, a first meeting. You need to build that trust over time. So give the investors time to follow what you are doing. Let them get to know you as a founder. And so you need to start that way before you're going to hit them up for money. And when you say way before, like 12 months before? I mean, as early as you can. Like, you know, I don't think it's ever too early to be out there networking with investors, telling them what you do, adding them to your mailing list where you let them know each quarter what your company's up to. So then, you know, ideally, that'd be great. Like in 12 months when they've been following your business, seeing how much impact you've made, what kind of founder you are, then it's like they can make a decision quite quickly because they already have that trust in what you've done. So, you know, I think there's a fear of approaching investors before you're ready to raise. That's not real. You should, you don't need to go and ask them for money early, just build relationships and networks. And then I think the other thing I would say, which is more of a psychological thing is, and I see this a lot with women in particular, but not just women, it's scary raising capital. And so often there's a temptation to outsource it. There's a lot of people that will, for a fee, tell you that they will raise capital on your behalf. And I would say for early stage businesses, that's a huge mistake because investors will always say the number one thing they look for is the founder and if you don't have the confidence to sell your own business that's a real signal and also no one can sell it the way you can like you're so connected to the problem you can definitely do a much better job you have to trust yourself so psychologically you just have to do the work you have to force yourself to get comfortable with pitching to making those networks and you might think that you're no good at it or you're no good at sales but that's just bad luck. You just have to figure out a way. And if you can't sell your own business and raise your own capital, then I think your likelihood of being able to raise is much lower. So force yourself to do the work. Well, and then it also raises the question of how you're going to sell your own product. Like that's the other thing. I think people are afraid of sales if they're technical people and they're going to raise money and then hire a magical salesperson. But, you know, I think you have to build that muscle yourself. And there's so much value in your, in doing it early as well because you're hearing the objections, whether it's from the customers or from the investors. It's never going to be relayed to you in exactly the same way as if you hear it yourself and that's the only way you can iterate and improve. Last question, what are you really excited and optimistic about? Well, I'm excited about hopefully having some sun and summer this year. No rain. <laughs> No rain, but that's just a little selfish thing. But no, look, there's a lot of great stuff going on in the roles that I'm involved in. So at Black Nova, we're very close to closing our very first fund, which will be amazing. We've already deployed quite a bit of capital, but really excited to build that up over the next year and get that happening. We're scaling up at Tractor. So we're kind of in our ready to scale mode, building out fast track and that offering. I'm just loving what I'm doing there and getting to support founders in so many different kinds of businesses. It's exciting. 
And then when I say excited and optimistic about this, it's about supporting women founders. And I say that with a level of it hasn't been great. You know, we just had our 10-year impact report at SBE and the percentage of women getting funded is lower than ever. But there's so much activity in that sector and there's so many people motivated to do something about it that I feel this really is the time where change can happen. Um, so I am excited to kind of throw myself into that over the next year as well and help to be part of that change. Yeah, and I think there's um, more weight in numbers. You know, there's more women out there like you that have been successful founders that have demonstrated that it's possible to build really great businesses in, in Australia, even though it's a small market, to then become successful investors. So, you know, I think that the ingredients are there, as you say, to, you know, really put some momentum behind shifting the dial. Yeah, I think so. And I think part of that as well is this growth in, you know, angel syndicates and so on, where more women are getting involved in investing and feel that they can be part of it. And all of that helps to grow it. And so, yeah, I think there's going to be some good movement in that over the next 12 months, hopefully. Oh, well, I'm excited about the same sort of thing. So thank you. It's great to talk to a kindred spirit. <laughs> Thanks, Catherine. That was lovely to chat. I find the investors and entrepreneurs I meet through Scale absolutely inspiring and learn so much from every conversation. If you feel the same and would like to get involved, visit us at www.scaleinvestors.com.au and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks to Buffy Gorilla for her amazing production and to the Scale team who make it all possible. Hope to see you again soon.